Well, happy Father's Day, friends, of you who are fathers. Uh, I know many of you can testify to what I'm about to say. I have no greater joy in life other than following Christ and being married to Jordan than being a dad. Uh, I didn't know how much I would love being a dad, but I love being a dad. And so uh, what a gift that we have. And so thank you, dads, for bringing your kids here today. Thank you for uh, wanting them to grow up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and it's a testimony to what God has done in you and what you want to see continue in them that you're here today. So thank you for being here today. Um, we're a church that's so blessed to have so many faithful fathers of so many generations. I think probably four or five generations sit under this roof right now of fathers. Um, and what a blessing to have so many dads that want to set godly examples for their kids because... That's a good thing because, you know, kids want to be like their parents. Isn't that funny? If you've been around kids for any amount of time, I, chances are you're going to see me and Jordan in our kids. Jude in particular wants to be so much like me. He looks like me. He talks like me. He emulates me. It's a crazy startling thing to see so much of yourself and your children. And that's a, a pattern that's happened as long as children have existed. In fact, this past week, we taught you a new game. It's called 20 Questions. He asks questions all the time anyway, so you might as well put them to good use in playing a game. And so we, we do this thing where we, you know, we think of an animal and you have 20 questions or 10 questions, we limited them, uh, but typically you have 20 questions to ask and try to get to the animal that we're thinking about. And even as we played this game, Jude watched how Jordan and I played this game to, have, to ask the right questions to narrow the scope of what animal it could be. And now as he plays the game, he asks the very same questions that we asked from the, the most Small parts of our life, Jude is emulating us and seeking to be like us, and that is an incredible privilege, but also responsibility. As we see our children striving to become like us, and even as I sit here today as a pastor and as a follower of Christ, I know that my job as a father is not complete if all Jude does is become more like me. Because I want him to be better than me. I want him to actually be like Jesus. My, my responsibility as a father and our responsibility as followers of Christ is not to make our children or others around us to be more like us. It's to help others around us, including our children, become more like Jesus. In fact, what I should be saying to my son is follow me as I follow Christ. Don't, don't just look to me because dad's imperfect. Dad doesn't get things right all the time. Dad doesn't know everything, despite what he may say sometimes. Uh, I want to point you to someone better. I want you to be like someone better. I want you to be like Christ. That's the desire of my heart as a father, and I hope it's the desire of everyone in this room who follows Jesus. Because as a follower of Christ, our desire should be to look like Christ. Because we're called to be like Jesus, and I think we're compelled to be like Jesus. The scripture makes it very clear that we who follow Christ, disciples, are supposed to look like the teacher, the rabbi, the savior that they follow. 1 John 2, 6. If we abide in Christ, we're to walk in the same way that he walked. But we're not just called, we're also compelled. Because friends, when you behold Jesus, and I hope this has been true as we've walked through the gospel of Matthew. When you've seen how incredible he is, 
when you've seen how compassionate he is, when you've seen how merciful, loving he is, when you've seen how he's taught with authority, when you've seen his, his power at work over every sphere of existence, you should be captivated by him. And know that in order to be faithful to God, you need to look like Jesus. So we're called and we're compelled to be like Christ. That's our desire as disciples of Jesus, to be like him. What a surprising Savior that Jesus is. What a surprising Lord that he is, at least from our perspective. He's so different than we could have expected, but that's what makes him so compelling. He's so different than we expected, and yet he's everything that we need. And here's what we need to remember tonight. The uniqueness of Jesus that we embrace is what enables us to be effective for the advancement of the gospel. As the church, we are most effective in the advancement of the gospel when we look like Christ. It's the distinctiveness of Jesus on us as we seek to become like him that is compelling to a world that is lost and in need. We are ineffective when we try to be like the world, but we are gloriously effective when we try to be like Christ. That's what endears us to the world because of the Savior that we embody who is endearing to a world who is in need. Jesus is teaching his disciples an important lesson today in our text. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. Here's what he's saying to them. True disciples of me look like me. True disciples of Jesus will grow to look like Jesus. And that should be our heart's desire. That should be our goal. While it is tempting to want to shape Jesus into our own image, to have a Savior that we construct from our own thoughts and our own ideas, we are called in the power of the Spirit to be shaped into his image. And that is better. It's better for us and better for the world. Aren't you glad that we don't have a Savior that we formed in our image, but rather who is calling us and empowering us to be shaped into his image? Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. Here's what Jesus says as he's walking with his disciples. Remember, he's on the, the road. They're going up to Caesarea Philippi. We've just seen Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon that confession, I'm going to build my church. And then, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples something unique that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Now, Jesus has made mention of this. He's referenced this sometimes through allusion, sometimes through metaphor, imagery, but now he's being very explicit. This is what's going to happen. And Peter, seemingly hearing this for the first time, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would lose his or save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. These are challenging words from Jesus directly to his disciples. There's a turning point here in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has now turned his attention to Jerusalem. He's turned his mind to the cross. And he wants his disciples to know what's coming for him and for them. He wants them to understand the true cost of discipleship. What it will take to come after Jesus. What it will take to follow Jesus. What it will take to actually be like him. If I could summarize all that Christ is saying here in one sentence, here's how I would write it. A true disciple trusts the will of God, takes up his cross, and longs for the kingdom of God. If you could summarize everything that Jesus is saying here in one phrase, the main idea of this text, a true disciple trusts the will of God, takes up the cross looking like the sun, and ultimately longs for the kingdom of God. Let's, let's walk through each piece of that sentence for a moment as it unfolds in the text to help us understand what it really looks like for us to look like Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to, to follow Christ? He's telling you explicitly here. A true disciple trusts the will of God. A true disciple looks like the Son of God by taking up the cross of Christ. And a true disciple longs for the kingdom of God. Firstly, a true disciple trusts the will of God. We see Jesus teaching this in verses 21 to 23 in his interaction with Peter. Jesus trusted the will of God above everything else. And if you want to be like Christ, if you want to come after him, if you want to live as Jesus lived, then we as disciples must also trust in the ultimate will of God. You read the New Testament and you read about Peter and it is a roller coaster, isn't it? I mean, he is high and low, and I don't know there's any greater example of the highs and lows of Peter's life than Matthew chapter 16. He was just blessed by Jesus. In the previous section in Matthew 16, because of his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, you are, you're, that confession, the example you're setting right now is going to form the foundation of this church. And in the course of just a few verses, he goes from being blessed to being rebuked. He was doing so well, and then he regressed. Jesus is walking along this road, talking with his disciples, teaching them, and he tells them that he must go to Jerusalem and he must die. And this is still somehow a surprising declaration because he hasn't been this explicit with his disciples to this point. And even if he had been explicit, this plan just does not make sense to human ears. It doesn't make sense that God would go about saving his people in this way, but that's what lets us know this redemptive plan is from God. It's the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. I gotta go to Jerusalem, Jesus says to the center of Jewish life, to the center of this Jewish religion, the place where sacrifices are made for the people of God. And I must suffer. I am the Lion of Judah, 
but I'm going to be slaughtered as a lamb. And the religious elite of the day, the experts in the law, the people that you trusted, they're going to be the ones who put me to death. Well, you could see from a disciple's perspective why this would be confusing. How could the Christ, the Son of the living God, die? Wouldn't that diminish his power? Wouldn't that end all that he came to do? Wouldn't this defeat the purpose of everything that we've been learning, walking with Jesus? Well, if they were listening closely, they would know the answer is no, because he's going to be raised on the third day. But they couldn't get over the first part. It's a lot to process for Peter and the disciples. So Peter takes Jesus aside. Now, can you imagine the audacity of this moment? You've just confessed that he is the son of the living God. He is the Messiah, the Christ. And yet you feel compelled, Peter feels compelled to rebuke Jesus. He goes to him and he says, Rabbi, Jesus, you're wrong. This could never happen to you. God would never say that. He would never say that. Peter's always been bold, but this is a new level. And so Jesus, having been rebuked, turns to Peter and does the right rebuking. He rebukes the one he just blessed, and he uses some strong words. He looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. Strong words. Peter, I know you mean well. I know why you're saying this. You're saying this because you love me and you have a particular conception that you've developed in your own mind about how God can achieve his purposes. I'm telling you it's wrong. And in you saying that to me, You've actually become a tool of the enemy to sow seeds of doubt in my mind about what I know is about to take place. Now listen, he's not saying that Peter is Satan here. He's not saying that Peter is even possessed by Satan. He's just saying that, Peter, you are opposing the clear stated will of God. And that is a spirit of Satan. When you oppose the clearly stated will of God, then you are stepping into, are you being an instrument of, the enemy. You're in alignment with Satan's desires more than you are with God's desires. Now, this is a clear teaching moment for us, friends, on multiple levels. When we don't trust the will of God, we stand in the way of the will of God. And disciples of Jesus should never stand in the will or the way of the will of God. God has made his plan abundantly clear if you are paying attention. From his words given to the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 53, listen to this, verses four to five, Isaiah 53. Surely this Messiah, the Christ, the one that Peter just confessed, right? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. If you read the Old Testament, Peter, you would know that the servant of God was going to be a suffering servant. And it's not even just what's been spoken to the prophets. I, as the Messiah, just told you. I am the living word of God. I'm the word incarnate. And I've just told you what God's will is. Get the alert. (laughs) Pay attention. You're missing it. God has said what must happen, but you just don't want to believe it. The people didn't want to believe it. Both the Jewish elite and the disciples, Peter himself, did not want to believe what God had said and Jesus was saying because it was contrary to their expectations. It challenged what they really thought and desired. The religious elite, the ones who knew the word of God, the, the law anyway, they're the ones who end up crucifying Jesus. Peter offers a temptation to Jesus to not believe what God has ordained. There's always, always danger in opposing the will of God. Hear me. You can know a lot about God and still not trust God. Isn't that a dangerous thing that we see on display here? Listen to the people that are going to crucify him. The elders, the people who've been doing this a long time, the chief priests, the scribes, the ones who should know, who should be able to recognize the Messiah, who were experts in the law, they're the ones who are going to put me to death. Knowledge of God, friends, does not mean that you know the will of God. Not really, not truly. Because knowledge can puff up. Isn't that what the Bible says? Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It can lead you to oppose even God's son, though you are religious, to the point of wishing him dead. We can think we know better than God when we know a lot about God. And what a dangerous position to be in. That's the sin of the elders, chief priests, and scribes. But there's even a more intimate sin here, right? With Peter. Listen to this. You can mean well in encouraging a brother or sister in Christ. But if it is not rooted in the will of God, it can actually lead someone astray from the will of God. Oh, surely God wouldn't do that to you. Surely God wouldn't expect that of you. Surely God wouldn't say. He wouldn't mean that. And in the moment, you have every intention of trying to comfort. But if you're not a If you're not comforting according to God's word, if you're not comforting according to God's will, then it's no comfort at all. It's false hope that can actually lead you away from the Lord, which is what Peter is doing here. And in that moment, you're an instrument of Satan, not an instrument of God. Because you're trying to oppose the will of God. Jesus wants us to know the true people of God will trust the will of God even when it doesn't make sense This is the mark of a disciple because it's the mark of Jesus who was faithful to God even to the end. God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But even if not, your will, not my will be done. He took the form of a servant and was obedient even to death on a cross. 
Aren't you grateful? Let's be like Jesus. Secondly, a true disciple willingly takes up their own cross to look like Jesus. Not only trusts the will of God, a true disciple willingly takes up their own cross in order to look like Jesus, the Son of God. This is the troublesome part of this passage. This is the part that gets a little real because of our American Western expectations about what we think we're entitled to when we follow the Lord. When we look like the actual Son of God, when we seek to follow after him, let me just tell you, the Bible makes this very clear, you're going to experience some hardship. You're going to experience some difficulty. God didn't promise us that we would be free of those things. He did promise us he would be with us. He did promise us he would sustain us. We're not above our master. If we're following him as servants, we have to expect that occasionally we're going to hit some hardship as well. But we're also going to trust that in the same way that God redeemed and brought glory to himself through the suffering and the hardship of Jesus, he can do that same thing for us, through us, for our ultimate good and his glory. Jesus says that this plan, what God has ordained for me, I'm the Christ, and it is part of God's plan that I suffer and die. But that's not just his plan for me, that I would experience hardship for the sake of redemption. It's also the plan for my disciples. Because if you truly follow me, you're going to be like me in every respect, and suffering is part of the deal. Death may be part of the deal, because friends, we are in a battle. We are in a war. We're, we're sitting at the intersection of two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God. And if we're going to be engaged in this work, if we're going to be engaged on the front lines as his church, we've got to take up our cross. And we've got to be willing to endure for the sake of the gospel. Are you willing, Jesus says to these disciples, to sacrifice yourself? Are you willing to sacrifice your desires? Are you willing to sacrifice your will for the will of God? Are you willing to lay down your physical life with the knowledge that you will find a greater life? And he's addressing their heart here because he knows what they want. We've already talked about their expectations. He knows what they want. In their heart of hearts, he knows what they desire, how they would have designed redemption. They're going to be fighting just a little bit over who's going to get to sit at Christ's right hand. They want him to ascend to a throne. They want to be in power. They have no power right now. And they're just waiting for the moment when someone will give them the earthly power that they are longing for to oppress the people who have been oppressing them. But that's not going to fix anything. That's not going to make it better. No, God has a better plan. There's something different happening with this Jesus. I'm going to give you something greater than greatness in this life, Jesus says. I'm going to give you eternal life with God. So setting aside what you think you want here will give you more than you could have ever imagined. Don't choose to be like this world. Don't embrace this world and forfeit your soul. Rather, be like me. Be a servant. Be sacrificial. Set aside what you think you want me to be and be like me. One of the biggest struggles we face as disciples of Jesus is managing our expectations. 
Or better, better said, having our expectations transformed. These disciples wanted an earthly king, but they were given a better king. They wanted earthly power, but they were given better power. They were given the, the keys of the kingdom, and the authority that had been given to Christ will be given to them. Jesus was not interested and placing men over men or just switching the balance of power on this earth, but rather to unite all men and devotion to him and worship to him. This is a different Messiah. It's a different king than we expected, but a better one. Listen, the goal of Christianity is not to shape Jesus around your expectations, but rather to be shaped by his into his image. And oftentimes, that shaping comes in the most difficult of circumstances. I'm sure there are many testimonies in this room about the refiner's fire that God brings us through at times. Whether it be difficulties at home, difficulties at work, difficulties in the church, sickness, illness, financial hardship, all of those things are meant to remind us of our weakness and need for God. And it's amazing when you look for him, how he shows up in the midst to increase your love and dependence upon him. Are you willing to endure those things to be used by God for the sake of the gospel? We're not greater than Jesus. We should not assume that God would not allow something to happen to us, that he would not allow, allow to happen to his son, but we can trust that God can redeem it. I was thinking about Paul this morning in Philippians chapter 3. Remember we were doing Philippians last year? And do you remember what he says when he's in the prison and people are asking him, you know, hey Paul, are you discouraged? Are you upset that this has happened to you? People are out here questioning your apostleship because of how much you've suffered how should we answer? Are you, are you okay? Here's how he answers in verses 7 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. Listen to this. Surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And here's how he's knowing Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. I realize they were trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Isn't it interesting how suffering bring about, brings about dependence, the right kind of dependence, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and listen to this, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, guys, I know you think that I'm a, I may be thinking I'm away or abandoned from Christ, but I've never felt closer to Christ than in this moment. Because I'm identifying with Jesus. I'm suffering in this prison. I'm thinking about how he suffered in greater ways for me. And I'm willing to do this for the sake of the gospel because I want to be like the son. I'm willing to take up my cross to be like Jesus. And this is not what I would have expected. If you go earlier, Philippians, you'll see his pedigree. I had a completely different expectation about what it meant to follow God, but this is better. And I want to be like Christ, so I'm taking up my cross. And finally, 
A true disciple longs for the kingdom of God. A true disciple longs for the kingdom of God, trusts the will of God, is willing to take up the cross to be like the Son, and is finally longing for the kingdom of God. Listen to these verses here in verses 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here's why you should give up everything else for the sake of the gospel. Here's why you should trust the will of God, and here's why you should take up your cross and seek to be obedient. Here's why you should allow me and the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word, to reshape your desires, to be in alignment with the desires and the Word of God. Because I'm going to come back. I'm going to die, but three days later I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to come back again. And when he comes, he will come with angels in the glory of his Father, and he will bring judgment. You will be judged on how you live here. And that's true of Christians and non-Christians alike, friends. As a Christian, you're going to be judged in your faithfulness to Christ and what he's entrusted to you as a steward. For non-Christians, your judgment is severely, severely more difficult because you'll be judged for rejecting Christ and embracing sin and removed from the presence of God in hell for all of eternity. All of us will stand before a holy and righteous God one day and give an account. The question is, how will we have lived this life and who will we have trusted in when that moment comes? Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge. And Jesus says here, some of you are even about to get a foretaste of what is to come. You're going to see my transfiguration. You're going to see my resurrection. You're going to see my ascension. You will see the church empowered for the kingdom. God's kingdom is here. It is being ushered in, and it will continue in ways that you could not imagine. Now, I want to make sure that we're clear here on what he's saying in verse 28. This is not referencing an eschatological or end times event entirely. It is in part. It's clearly reinforcing something immediate because Jesus says that some of these people will not die until they see what he's referencing. So all these people who are listening are not going to live forever. There's something immediate that they're going to see that's going to point them to the future reality that we are all hoping for. So you're going to see these things that I just mentioned, my transfiguration, my resurrection, my ascension, and the, the spirit fall on the church as an evidence that my kingdom is at hand. And why is this important? Well, it's been said that eschatology is the mother of ethics, or what happens in the end is going to affect what you do today. It should have an effect. Knowing that Christ is coming, knowing that he will judge, should affect the way that we live today. The example of Jesus and the reality of judgment must guide our faithfulness as Christians. Now, of course, all that for the Christian is bound up in love and a desire to please God, who has so incredibly saved us. But we still have to reckon with the fact that we will give an account 
And a disciple who desires to be faithful will set all of his hope on the kingdom. What was the example of Jesus? At every point, I gotta be about my father's business. I want every part of my life to be wholly devoted to the things of God. If we friends, as Christians, disciples, wanna be like Jesus, we gotta live in that way because one day we're gonna be judged on how much like Jesus we were as disciples of Christ. Wasn't this true in the early church? Didn't they live in this way? Think about the book of Acts. They believed what Jesus said. They embraced the will of God. They sought to be like the Son in the power of the Spirit. And what did they do? They gave their lives to declaring the gospel. They gave all of their resources for the good of the church. And many of them gave their lives because they believed they were destined for something better. They believed that eternal life had come through Christ and a better kingdom awaited them. That is the mark of a true disciple. This past week, I got to go to the SBC and there was some uh, convention and there were some interesting things that happened. Uh, I think mostly good uh, in the end, but one of the things that we all could agree on, one of the things that we all celebrated was the commissioning service for IMB missionaries. And I was thinking about even some missionaries that are right here in this room with us today because there were several people who were introduced going to very hard to reach places and they could not even show their faces. And so often, in this commissioning ceremony in front of you know, 15,000 Southern Baptists, there would be a screen backlit and all we could see was the silhouette of these people who could only give us their first names. They couldn't even tell us what church they were really from or the location of that church because they were going to places where it was dangerous. Life, literally life-threatening to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why on earth would someone do that? Why on earth would someone take up that kind of cross? It's because they've set their hope in a different kingdom, right? They've felt the compulsion to be like Christ, who was the first missionary, who came from heaven to be like us so that he could save us and deliver good news. And if he was willing to do that, what am I not willing to do for his glory and his good? And so they go. Now God's not gonna call all of you to go overseas. He's gonna call you to pray and to, to give toward that. But he is calling you to be like Jesus here. Would you be willing to set your hope on the kingdom so that you can be like Jesus for the sake of those around you here. What a compelling picture of a disciple that Jesus gives to us. May it be our desire to look like Christ. Trusting in the will of God, taking up our cross like the sun, and placing our hope fully in his kingdom. That'll change the world. It has, it will. How should we respond this morning? Let me ask you some questions to think about as we reflect upon the word of God and how to respond. Firstly, are you a true disciple of Jesus? Are you following him? Have you given your life to him? Are you walking with him? Jared, how do I do that? In repentance and belief. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Saved from that future judgment and brought into the family of God. Jesus 
took your final judgment upon himself so that you could be freed and spared from the wrath of God and be included in the family of God for all those who call upon him for salvation. All of those who follow after him. Are you following after Jesus? This disciple stuff doesn't apply to you if you're not following Christ. That's the first thing we gotta get right today. Are you following Christ? If you're not, would you hear the call today and would you be compelled by the image of Jesus to give your life to him? can't think of a better thing to do on this Sunday, this Father's Day, than to take advantage of the gift of the Heavenly Father in sending his Son. Are you following Jesus? If you are following Jesus, do you look like Jesus? Are you trusting in the will of God? Are there times where something that God brings to your attention is so different than your expectations that you want to reject it even though it's what he said needs to happen. I think about Joseph, not Old Testament, New Testament, the earthly father of Jesus. And I think about that moment. You know, Joseph was a unique guy, ordinary guy, ordinary Jewish guy, carpenter, was excited about getting married to Mary, have a normal Jewish life, normal Jewish kids. And then all of a sudden, he finds out his betrothed is pregnant. And by the way, not by another man, by the Holy Spirit, and you're not going to have normal kids, I'm going to ask you now to raise the Son of God. That'll challenge your life, right? That'll challenge your dream board, or your vision board, whatever it is that you had on your Pinterest. Is that still a thing? I don't know. Whatever your life was in your room, uh, your vision board, that's, that's kind of a little, a little bit of an interruption. And yet, what did Joseph do? He was faithful. He said, yes, Lord, you've said it. I'm going to do it. I don't understand it. I'm going to do it. And don't you know Jesus was blessed by a godly earthly father who trusted in the will of God? What about us? Do we trust in the will of God? Are we growing in knowledge such that it leads to trust or knowledge that it leads to pride? Are we encouraging one another, not with what we want or prefer, what the word of God has said? Jared, how do I know the will of God? He says it. He said it in Isaiah. He said it here. He's told us what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. Do you trust it? Even when it doesn't make sense. Are you trusting in the will of God as a disciple? Are you taking up your cross? Are you looking more like the sun by taking up your cross? Operating not in earthly wisdom, but godly wisdom. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to get out of your comfort zone? Are you willing to to not do what's in your best interest in order to serve the kingdom and the gospel. I, think, I was thinking about this this week because Pastor Kurt made an incredible point as we were talking about the sermon on Thursday about dads and how practical this particular point can hit in our lives and then expand even beyond that. But as dads, how many times, dads, do you come home from work, it's been a long day, and you just want to sit in front of the TV and watch something or you know, drink a glass of iced tea, hopefully iced tea, not something else. And uh, you just want to relax. But your wife is like, I need some help. And your kids are like, Daddy, play with me. Daddy, play with me. And you have in that moment a decision either to cave into your will or to sacrifice for the good of your family. Are you going to take up your cross to serve them, to pour into them as an example of God? Remember, God's going to, 
teach your kids about him through you. Even little moments like that, God redeems for his kingdom building. Moms, obviously you do this all the time. You know this. Dads, we need to do it too. Are we willing to sacrifice and set aside what we would prefer, our selfish desires for what is best for our families? That's what we're called to do as image bearers, especially as we're called to lead our homes like Christ. Are we going to love our families like Jesus loved the church? Take up our cross. And then, guys, throughout the, the course of your life, are you willing to serve people? In this church, are you willing to sacrifice what you would desire or, or prefer for the good of the whole? Because it's what brings us into unity and love. Are we willing to take up our cross to be like Christ? And finally, are you placing all of your hope in the kingdom? I heard a faithful pastor say earlier this week, people have no problem choosing heaven over hell. They have a problem choosing heaven over earth. Isn't that a good word? Uh, I think the collective uh is a collective <laughs> conviction, right? That's our struggle. I mean, do you want to burn or do you want to run through fields with Jesus? Well, clearly I want to run through fields with Jesus. But there's something about here that's so captivating that the enemy uses to get our minds off of, our eyes off of what truly awaits us. In a world that continually causes you or challenges you to place your hope here? Are you willing to deny yourself for something better? I was really challenged by Peter in this, this passage. I think as we all are because Peter's so much like us. Um, it was natural for Peter to say what he said. Right? I don't want you to die, Jesus. There's no way death could be what God desires for you. I don't want to believe it. I think that's exactly how I would have responded. Because so much of the time, my hope is placed here. This is the end. It can't be the end. But Jesus says, Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Is it possible that God has something better for you than you can imagine? What is natural is actually not what's best for you. I want to make this point, I want to do it very carefully because we're in the middle of Pride Month. And many of us in this room have LBGTQ friends. And it seems like this year more than ever, it's been even more heightened in terms of the celebration and the desire to express yourself and to do what is natural. Or what you believe to be as natural in terms of attraction and who you uh, pursue in a relationship and who you marry. But I just want to ask this question. What if what is natural is not what is best? What if God has something better for you according to what he has said? And would you be willing to pursue that to find where true joy is found because you're going to set your hope on something better than this world? I would love to have a conversation with you about that if you struggle with that. I know our pastors and ministers here would love to have a conversation about that as well because we want you to know what God's best is for your life. And we want you to know that there is supernatural freedom in the gospel and there's joy inexpressible in the gospel. And while something faithful and natural, it may not be best. It actually may go against what God desires as we see in our passage today. So many ways for us to respond today. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Ask the Lord to 
help you know how to respond to Jesus' calling to be like Christ, to be a disciple, to make us aware of what it actually means to be a disciple. Are you a disciple? Are you following Christ? If not, would you give your life to him today? If you are, are you trusting in the will of God? Are you taking up your cross to be like the Son? And are you setting your hope on the kingdom? Father, would you help us not to be offended in a bad way, but offended in a good way if the gospel is offended today? Because we want to uproot and get out all those places in our life that don't look like your Son. We want to follow him and be like him because you've called us to and we're compelled to because of how you've loved us in Jesus. Help us be faithful, we pray, in our response in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand, friends, and let's sing to this worthy God.